0: Welcome to machine learning how the world works. There's a game called We Are Doomed and it was such a fascinating game. It has resources and influences and then you play different roles and then you pull different cards from the deck and based on that you have uh, what they call events. And it's a fun game because what you're trying to do is get enough resources built up to uh, create seats on a rocket that are going to lift you from Earth and the idea is that uh, some huge catastrophic events coming and you need to have create the seats to get off of planet Earth to safety wherever safety is probably Mars or something which um, is probably delayed destruction in itself but the the game is fun because in the game it teaches you some important principles about resource and that if you're so it takes 40 40 resources to create one seat and then 10 uh, resources for every seat after and if you work cooperatively, you're more likely to have enough seats to get off of planet Earth and if you use invasions or invade it's more likely that you won't so in this game i took the kind of the corporate idea of creating a monopoly which was to use my resources to invade other uh, players to, to remove them from the game and as a result by removing them from the game i wasn't able to build up my the resources And had I not removed a couple of key players, they may have had plenty of resources for me to have a seat on the rocket getting off planet Earth. Now, this is also true, helped me realize this is why monopolies are such a bad thing because it makes a few people rich in resource. But overall, for the larger group, there's not enough resources to create the seats to get in the rocket to lift off on planet Earth. In other words, cooperation builds more resources and those resources create more seats. And so what I took that, uh, a takeaway from that game is that you should never use uh, invade to advance resources. Now, this is an interesting parallel because there is a a, what I believe is a, uh, a global reset being announced by the elite. Central banks and governments and global financial institutions are all pointing now to recession and saying to the masses, look at everything we've done to make your lives better. We saved you from the banks. We saved you from the financial collapse. We saved you from austerity. Okay, so what what is that really summarizing to mean? They're basically saying we prevented the Great Depression of 2011 from occurring. but have they have they really? Well, we our economy's inflating. money supply is at over 30 trillion. The maximum amount of money that can be bought borrowed by the uh, government without taking uh, more in the terms of taxes is 35 trillion. So we're almost at the point now where taxes have to be increased to cover the cost of the national debt interest payments. So all of this in terms of fiscal policy to prevent the Great Depression that did occur in 2011. And why do we say that it occurred in 2011? Because there was a a catastrophic increase in money supply. In 2021, or 2020, 2021, let's see, 2021, there was a 4X increase in our money supply. And that was because the commercial banks for overnight lending had had a confidence problem in extending uh, loans. And so the Fed stepped in and increased the money supply to create more liquidity. So rather than let bad, at investments liquidate and uh, good investments continue forward in the game. Like in terms of resources, instead, what we did is we let bad resources continue to survive in the form of bailouts, which were transferred to uh, payments by the taxpayers. So we incurred those, we extended out those loans and they became. Uh, they became debts that would have to be repaid into the future, but not necessarily because the risk was low. We extended these loans out with the risk being very high. And what is the great fear of the Great Depression? Well, in the case of a corporations, corporations manage resources, they produce goods, they produce services. And then they sell that to individuals with money and they exchange that. And so as a result, we don't grow our own food. We don't produce our own clothes. We don't uh, manufacture our own homes. And and we don't uh, exchange in the bartering systems between each other. Milk for uh, butter, cheese for f- uh, fabrics. Uh, lumber for uh, metals, etc. Instead, we go through corporations and we buy products and services. So if the money supply were to decrease and the value of our money increase and interest rates decrease uh, as uh, inflation shrinks and the money supply shrinks, and bad debts are liquidated, we would then say, well, we fear starvation and we're fear that the food lines will form. But what is wealth? Wealth is job creation. So when governments try to create jobs, it's very inefficient because they don't know how to allocate for resources according to demand or market demand. So free market systems, are really the better way to generate wealth because they are very efficient in the allocation of their resources for the jobs. And so in that cooperative environment, instead of a monopolistic environment, you have more job creation, more wealth, and products than can be bought (coughs) and sold in a wide diversity because there's plenty of money to make those purchases they've said we've saved you from starvation we've saved you from economic depression that's their great fear and that play on the fear of people we've saved you from glo- global financial armageddon uh i that that's the 1.1 quadrillion dollars of derivatives that's your financial armageddon and those interest rate swaps at 300 over 350 trillion dollars have yet to correct, and we'll see how that correction affects our financial systems uh, as the derivatives begin to reverse and unwind without us, you would have been in a gutter a long time ago without us, you would have been jobless, homeless, and penniless. It was one of my great fears in the in the banking systems and the mortgage based systems as we saw in two thousand and eight how millions of homes were taken, some of them legally, some of them illegally, uh, by banks. And it created a confidence or a perception in my mind that what was the governing factors that were preventing banks from taking people's homes. And for that reason, I can't wait to have my mortgage paid off because I don't want to have any possibility that the mortgage company or the bank could take my home from me. Without us, you would have been in a gutter a long time ago. Uh, without us, you would have been jobless, homeless, and penniless. Without us, you would have been reduced to a pile of financial dust. Without us, you would have been starved to death. Without, without us, you would have been working for pennies. So the question that there that I have is, have we been reduced to a third world country in terms of our buying power? Uh, When you look at the wage increases versus the rate of cost increases around us, is our money now becoming worth less? And if we compare that to precious metals, you look at Gold at over $2,000 an ounce. You look silver around $25 an ounce, probably $24, $25 an ounce. And you ask yourself what the buying power difference has been over the last decade. And it's significant. Our money buys far less today. The leader preparing the masses for impending global reset. They're setting up the public to believe they actually need central banks to protect them from the inevitable financial collapse. Well, you know, with $30 trillion of debt and over $20 trillion of money supply, I think financial banks are, are the financial central banks have become the power centers and when government and big business come together if there are problems in terms of a Republican form of government where our representatives are supposed to be representing the people's interest they begin to represent the corporate interest and if the corporate interest is to be uh, monopolistic then you have anti-competitive forces moving against us and that um, is not that does not generate wealth and jobs. The leader conditioning the masses to accept a pseudo-elite, a group of people who think that they're going to save the world when it's already too late to be saved. Well, uh, you know, the world, to who's trying to save the world? Okay, if we return back to clean water, cheap energy, and low taxation and low government influence like the Anti-Federalists did, the world doesn't need to be saved. It will begin to operate very efficiently. But if you're in a world with big government, strong centralized banks like the Federalists wanted, and a large government where maybe two-thirds of the employees are government workers, then you're gonna have shortages because everything becomes very socialized, very controlled controlled, and very monopolistic. The lead have already admitted they have no idea how to fix the current economy. That's because they're socialists. They do not believe that free market systems have the ability to innovate and redistribute wealth like Adam Smith in The Invisible Hand did, believed. And as a result, they do not believe that people have the power to create wealth. They only believe that certain groups of people have the wisdom and everyone else is not intelligent enough to have the wisdom to create wealth. And so as a a result, they hoard their resources in the terms of $600 trillion or more and they keep that to help them get off planet Earth to travel to Mars. But in... A sense that's ridiculous because if they travel to mars the maximum amount of time that they live in mars is uh, proportioned to the number of months that their bones uh, begin to deteriorate or they lose bone mass due to lower gravity forces on mars and so uh, at some point they will suffer the effects of osteoporosis and their goal to get off earth will end with impending destruction on Mars. So that solution is not a viable and feasible solution long-term. So the only solution is to stay on planet Earth and to cooperate and build resource. And they haven't seen that vision yet. But it's not as if they haven't been warned. They have been warned and the data suggests that there are plenty of resources, in fact, an unlimited amount of resources on planet Earth. Um, The global financial system implodes and global economy reverts back to the Stone Age. Well, why would you do that? You know, it almost seems like uh, the case of pending destruction on Earth. Why would you want to go back to the Stone Age where the there are many haves and there are mostly have-nots and as a result of the resource shortage, now you have um, exclusiveness, why would you want to go back to that, that environment? Um, It's, to me, that doesn't make sense. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about a book um, called The Ultimate Resource 2. The engineering process for forecasting scarcity is as follows. First, estimate the presently known physical quantity of the resources. 2. Extrapolate the future rate of use from the current use rate. 3. Subtract the successive elimination of use in and from the inventory. The economic process for forecasting is as follows. Ask whether there is any convincing reason to think that the period for which you are forecasting will be different from the past. Well, what that's saying is, anytime you're dealing with forecasting, you need to uh, you base that on historical data. So, if you use a regression or some sort of curve fitting, the polynomial is going to curve fit to historical data. Um, And so you want to ask, is there anything in the past that might be a surprise in the future, where there could be deviation from that trend? If there's no good reason to reject past trend as representative of the future, ask whether there's a reasonable explanation for the observed trend. If there's no reason to believe that the future will be different from the past, and if you have a solid explanation for the trend, or even if you lack a solid theory, but the data are overwhelmingly projecting the trend into the future, then you're safe. There is a wide disparity between engineering and economic forecasting. Prediction is always a leap of faith. There is no scientific guarantee from past to the future. The correctness of an assumption that would happen in the past will similarly happen in the future rest on your wise judgment and knowledge of your subject matter. A prediction based on past data is sound if it's sensible to assume that the past and the future belong to the same statistical universe. That is, if you can expect conditions that held in the past to remain the same in the future. Ask yourself, have conditions changed in the recent years in such a manner that the data on natural resources generated over the past decade are no longer relevant? Okay, so we've been talking here a lot about making predictions uh, 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 into the future, about resources based on data. And at the same time, we say that prediction itself is a leap of faith. And largely, we're talking about when we say leap of faith, confidence in deviation from the historical trend. If there is a possibility or risk of deviation from the historical trend, then we call that the unknown. And our confidence in the unknown is or confidence in the known becomes decreased as the unknown uh, increases. Okay, going back to natural resources, the cost of natural resources have been steadily declining. As I've stated in previous podcasts, we're getting we're creating more and more oil. There is no reason to believe that oil prices should be as high as they are Um, with the exception that our money supply has increased so significantly. So the resource itself is being increased, but because the money supply increased, uh, we, we perceive that there's a scarcity in the supply. And so in reality, because oil is becoming so abundant that, uh, Price should be decreasing as supply is increasing significantly. We're under the impression that uh, there is a shortage of oil when that is not true at all. And that's giving rise to the green movement, which is your wind, solar, and also the new one that's coming on board is hydrogen, where companies are now converting from natural gas to hydrogen to power their electrical facilities. Another way of thinking about cost is the proportion of one's total income to get them. This measure reveals a steady decline. This trend makes it clear that the cost of minerals, even if it becomes considerably higher, which we have no reason to expect, is also irrelevant to our standard of living. And hence, an increased scarcity of mineral is not a danger to our peacetime standard of living. Now, this, was, this has been historically true for um, up to this point in time. But in, I would say in the last four years, uh, we're seeing a deviation from this statement because we, of the effect of war and war and inflation move together. So war and during periods of high warfare, you're going to have periods of high inflation. So that would imply that we are fighting with Russia because our inflation is increasing because they are at war with Ukraine and that is having an effect on our economy. World resources do not go down. They even um, They will go up. The anti-intuitive conclusion is that even as we use coal, and iron, and oil, and other resources—they are becoming less less scarce. Well, yes, anything that is being consumed in great amounts becomes less scarce because of scale, uh, uh, mass of scale. And so, we can conclude that there is more oil, there is more coal, and there is more iron that is being mined. Now, the thing that would cause a a perceived reduction in that would be that um, there are quotas and regulations put in place to block the overproduction, things like NAFTA and CAFTA, and uh, that those those artificial barriers are creating a monopolistic effect in, a, in that they're reducing competition for those resources so those resources are not being developed as much or produced as much as soon as information about the impending scarcity becomes known and accepted people begin buying the commodity they bid up the present market price until it reflects the expected future scarcity in 1973 the japanese overreacted to the opec Uh, supply manipulation of oil the japanese and above all japanese officialdom were seized by hysteria in 1974 when raw material shortages were cropped up everywhere they bought and bought and bought iron copper pulp sulfur and coke coal now they are frantically trying to get out of the commitments to take delivery And have slashed raw material imports nearly in half. So again, it created a a mania, a hysteria, a panic, and overbuying. Even so, industrial inventories are bulging with high-priced raw materials. Japan paid heavy for its blunder. Mineral resources will not rise in real price, but only adjust for inflation. So that's where I'm pointing my finger right now, is at inflation. The prophecies of limits to growth are falsified. Increasingly, China attempted to control growth, resulting in millions starving. The Chinese chose to start uh, the One Baby program. The Chinese government responded with force to implement a policy of one child per family. A political scientist discussed the relationship of resources to natural national security refers to the inconvertible fact that many crucial resources are not renewable. The assumption of finiteness undoubtedly misleads many scientific forecasters because their conclusions follow inexorably from the assumption Limits to growth gives this false doctrine. The world model is based on the fundamental assumption that there is an upper limit to the total amount of food that can be produced annually by the world's agricultural system. John Maynard Keynes. And that's just a big fat lie. There is so much uh, food production in the world and if you just turn on desalinization if you had uh, let's say you use wave uh, energy from the ocean to generate the power for the desalinization you'd have plenty of water for agriculture to feed the people of the world again the the huge surge there would be a huge surge in raw materials the prices would drop and uh people in the food industry that are making lots of money would have much smaller profit margins as those volumes increase and as consumers begin to buy cheaper uh, food products. Now, there are also processes now for uh, creating clean water that don't require the expensive high-pressure reverse osmosis. And those uh, systems are now beginning to come online. And so the idea of an impending food shortage is a big fat lie. Uh, Price is the key. Low prices cause innovation. Innovation reduces inefficiency. Increased inefficiency improves discovery of new resources or a substitute process or commodity. Kerosene for oil, electricity for steam, and possibly hydrogen for hydro. That's what the extra uh, next era Corporation is going to invest twenty billion dollars by twenty twenty uh, of twenty forty five, and they're saying that they're going to convert all to hydrogen. So the new hydrogen movement uh, for energy will produce um, near huge amounts of energy and also innovation. They believe in the form of energy production. And energy consumption, especially if that begins a new trend in semi movement of products, where semis are running on hydrogen, and that would give companies like Nikola the chance to emerge from their slump. Heightened scarcity causes prices to rise. The higher prices present opportunity and prompt investors and entrepreneurs to search for solutions. And free society solutions are eventually found. Infinite resource, even if energy is relevantly constrained by fabricating new kinds of new raw materials, on would need to take on, uh, excuse me, on would need to take on, into account, at the very least, all mass slash energy in the solar system. This amount is so huge relative to our use of energy, even by many multiples of present population and many uh, multiples of the present rate of individual use, that even if our solar system in seven billion years or whatever would hardly be affected by our energy use now. So what I'm saying, what it's saying there, is there is so much energy that is available. That even at the most uh, highest levels of consumption that we could use, that we could probably continue to, uh, we would be able to continue for seven billion more years. So there's no, there's an almost unlimited amount of energy for mankind. Man has a total propensity towards creation rather than destruction. We can expect a positive preponderance. Of creativity over our own exploitive activities, we are not at a turning point of destruction. Instead, there is a reliable long-term pattern of non-scarcity. The population bomb that started in the 1970s was another big fat lie. Never was going to happen. Never uh, should never have been listened to. Listen to and those who are uh, advocating Club of 700 should have been laughed out. At, as uh, being ridiculous liars. Food production is so complete that if government subsidies did not artificially hold up the prices, then food prices would drop to lower levels. More food is grown on less land and with less labor. Erosion losses are mitigated as farmers move towards flat land irrigation. Flat land is farmed using large equipment, automated irrigation systems, and better fertilizers. Economies of scale increase supply. Food production in the U.S. could be immediately enlarged if the government stopped paying farmers to keep land idle. The price of wheat has fallen adjusted for inflation, even as world demand for wheat increased. Food supply increased because of agricultural knowledge resulting from research and development that was induced by the increased demand together with the improved ability of farmers to get their produce to market or better transportation. All important historical trends points towards cheaper food. Famines were caused by government policies. In 1958, Chinese famine, uh, 30 million people died. In the 1930s, Ukraine, 7 million people died. And Africa and Somalia distribution breakdowns and warlords profiteering. In 1991, China had reversed its scarcity problems and was shipping grain and meats to the Soviets. India can vastly improve its food production and seek to match Japan and Taiwan food productions. Better storage would reduce uh, waste to pests by 15-20%. to In short-run, cost increases, but in the long-run, population pressures reduce cost. Hydroponics is sufficiently practical that one supermarket has built a 10,000 square foot vegetable garden. Pido Farm in DeKalb, Illinois, produces mainly lettuce and other uh, garden vegetables in factory measured by 200 by 250 feet at a ton of rate of a ton of food per day. Enough to completely feed five hundred to thousand people. You know there are some cities that are building these huge gardens. Uh, they're mechanically operated, and they produce uh, they can produce lettuce, they can produce fruits, and they can sell those, or it can be a part of the community living where people can enjoy those produce. Uh, without having to go to the supermarket. So their own food production in big cities. So the idea of food scarcity, again, is really uh, short-lived as innovation could create solutions that could solve these these problems. Fish farms have begun to produce at near-competitive prices, the main obstacle to rapid increase in aquaculture costs and hence is wild fish are too cheap to uh, invite competition? Well, yeah, but there's been some problems in the world's oceans, and as a result of that, uh, private fish companies have become more popular because it believes that it's uh, a higher quality fish, and uh, that's to be disputed or uh, debated whether that's true or not. We believe too much bad news. We need to have more faith in free markets and innovation. Land is almost irrelevant to food production. The sharp rise in the 1970s provides an illustrative case history of government intervention in the energy market. Conventional experts predict a continued rise to, say, $3 a barrel by 1990s. In 1979, OPEC prices rise were the result of a cartel agreement and not extraction costs associated with oil. If one wants to know about the world's capacity to produce oil, the appropriate indicator is the cost of production and the transportation for the oil There remains a small portion of the production cost. During the energy crisis, the cost of oil did not rise at all, and it remained 1% of the selling price of the crude. The energy prices to the consumer had fallen continually. In the face of world surplus of oil, Saudi Arabia and several other OPEC nations cut their oil production by 10%. Still another waste due to false energy scarcity was the $15 billion thrown away on the development of synthetic fuels. Okay, synthetic fuels are... Uh, producing gas from coal, uh, and and so they spent all this money on trying to to do uh, gas to coal from uh, coal to gas, and you know I've thought I I did a podcast on that one too, and it said you know that's a technology. If you think that there's scarcity, which there is no scarcity, that's the problem why it's never been done, is that you could take all this surplus of coal and begin to convert it into gas. And then all the green people come on board and say, oh, well, that'll create all this carbon and and that'll affect climate change. So uh, we don't want to do that. So now the big push is, let's move to straight to hydrogen and uh, in, we'll pay for that hydrogen infrastructure through higher taxes. When OPEC boasts the the price of oil in 1973, the price of uranium began to jump from $8 to $53 a ton within three years. This meant that Westinghouse might accrue losses of perhaps $2 billion. At the same time, Gulf Oil, together with Canadian government and other producers of uranium, got together to keep the price of uranium high. There we go, the scarcity wars.